Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I'm joined by my good friend Eric Cook for a discussion of Christmas in America. This is part of my Middle Brow series and it is a bit unusual. Today we're not discussing a movie, today we're discussing the traditions of Christmas in America. Where do they stand to America? Where do they stand to Christianity? Where do they stand to the various habits from different parts of the country? We'll be talking about pre-American Christmas as well as American Christmas. Eric, thanks for joining me. It was a great surprise for me to hear that you know so much about this and that you share it with people. You started by giving a lecture to children, to teenagers, to middle schoolers about America and Christmas. Well, Titus, it all started and thing. I'm perennially, I'm basically a 10-year-old boy. So when I got interested in history, there were only four things that really interested me. Food, holiday, traditions, old toys, and war. Typical 10-year-old boy. So one of the things I got interested in was, well, where do all of our holiday traditions come from? And over the years, it's been something I've been pursuing. And what I discovered as I began teaching, teaching as a second career for me, was even many of the things that I thought were going to be eternal parts of American Christmas had died out just from the 1970s and 80s to the early 2000s and the 2010s. You also have this horrible thing in American public schools where you always end up with a day and a half somewhere along the way where the kids know it's all over, the tests are all done, the papers are all collected, maybe not all graded, but what am I going to do with these semi-barbarians that I have on my hands? (laughs) And one of the things that I decided to do was just do a lecture with lots of illustrations and not make it a grade or anything and just fill in a class period with it. Well, the first year I did it, my students loved it. For many of them, they'd never thought about the traditions in their own home. And when we explored some of the things that were part of America's past in Christmas, they were shocked. And so I thought, oh, this is a lot of fun. And so now it's become an annual tradition in my classroom and students actually look forward to it, especially the bizarro Victorian Christmas cards that we end with. But that doesn't work so well in radio, so we'll skip them today. Um, So that's the origin of the talk itself. And you said you were interested in it. And I thought, well, wonderful. Let's share it with a wider audience. We'll miss the visual components, but maybe we can put some things up somewhere for some yeah, things for them to I'll see. We'll put up some show notes, see if we can find images. And of course, folks listening, write down comments, write down questions, and I will get Eric to come back for a follow-up and answer them. So we'll have a kind of <laughs> delayed Q&A. I don't often have experts on Christmas on the podcast, so I will try to get everything I can out of this. Well, I don't have a PhD in Christmasology, but I do rely on a couple of really good books, and I'd also point your audience to them. Um, I think they're really the best book. It's one of the first. There's several out now. It's called The Battle for Christmas by Stephen Nissenbaum. And I think it was 1999 and it was shortlisted for the Pulitzer Prize. It didn't win, which, of course, that's a good sign. The books that don't win usually are the better ones. Uh, <laughs> but it, it really is an excellent, excellent, you know, it's about 325 pages of text and proper scholarly footnotes and all that good jazz that you just skip. But it is worth <laughs> the time to read. Uh, it's a fun book. He writes well. And it's the book that got me started after college into really digging deeper into this, my curiosity that had been awakened as a junior high, high school age boy interested in history. So our starting point is New York. It is strangely important for the history of American Christmas out of all proportion to the state or the city or the place. And this will show up in our discussion again and again and again. So let's start there. Yeah, New York City, if you can't make it there, you know, if you, you're you got to go to New York, right? It's this... (laughs) 
<laughs> you got, yeah, it's that's just, the it's, message. Yeah, it's, it's central to American Christmas. Think about it. How many American TV shows, specials, made-for-TV movies, and Hollywood classic Christmas movies, they all have some sort of New York City tie-in. Well, we'd expect that. It's our biggest city and most famous iconic city. But it's also because it really is the home of modern American Christmas, and it, and it deserves that place. And it's a place where immigrant traditions have merged throughout our history. And even in our early history, our colonial history, New York was a microcosm in some ways of what's going to become America, this commercial city where people from different places come together and find a way to tolerate each other in a way that wasn't true in our other great colonial cities. So New York, of course, originally is New Amsterdam, and it's in its Dutch origins that we get one of the major contributions is the American Santa Claus, is the direct descendant of the Dutch Sinterklaas. St. Nicholas was important to the Dutch and Catholic Europe. And as they came to the New World, even though they had become by this time a commercial republic with a official Calvinist religious outlook, the tradition of St. Nicholas survived, surprisingly. Modern Americans talk about, we talk about the war on Christmas. The war on Christmas is a great American tradition. It has been going on since the yes. 17th century. And surprisingly, the original war on Christmas was fought by the more serious Christians in our earliest history, the Puritans. The Dutch and the Puritans have, and this is the link between them and New York City, were Calvinists. And so they were iconoclasts. They removed the statuary from the churches, smashed their stained glass windows. They didn't throw out their pipe organs, uh, but they didn't use them for worship except to accompany the singing of psalm verse of the Puritans went a step further. They got rid of the pipe organs, too. I, I say that because I'm, I'm an organist, so, you know. Uh, it's personal. It's personal. I take umbrage at that. The Dutch and the Puritans shared this Calvinism, but the Dutch, you know, they're a little more relaxed in many ways. And, and like they didn't throw out their pipe organs, they didn't throw out St. Nicholas. And so the giving of candy and little treats to children in their wooden shoes with some straw, maintaining some of the traditional elements. Of course, St. Nicholas is a fourth century uh, bishop of Myra in Turkey, famous both for his defense of Orthodox. Orthodoxy. He gets his nose broken in a fistfight at the Council of Nicaea. And he's also famous for having, on one occasion, uh, there was a wealthy nobleman who had fallen on hard times and his daughters were about to be sold into sexual slavery and married without dowries. And Nicholas took pity on them and supposedly threw three small bags of gold coins over successive evenings into this man's window. One of them on one of the occasions landing in the stocking of the one of the young ladies that was being dried on the family fire. Hence the tradition of gifts in the shoe and the stocking and all of that at Christmas tide. That's the legend anyways uh, that comes down to us through the Middle Ages. And the Dutch continue this tradition. Now, just up the coast in Boston, however, we have the Puritan colony of New England. And while you may have turkey for Thanksgiving, you may not have turkey for Christmas because there was no Christmas in Puritan New England. It was illegal. Just like when Oliver Cromwell and uh, the parliamentarians are going to win the English Civil War, they're also going to outlaw Christmas in England and those dominions. So the first war in Christmas is the Puritans. Now, it seems odd to us today to think that a Christian sect would be against Christmas, but many Christian sects in early America were against Christmas. So when you see these Christmas cards, Colonial Williamsburg loves to put these out. There's the Christmas tree and the fire and there are wreaths everywhere and bows and ribbons. It's all just hogwash. The average American colonial home had nothing for Christmas. <laughs> now, in the South, things are a little different. We'll get to that. So, yeah, that's quite a surprise. I was not expecting this when you told me, but it makes so much sense for the Puritans, and in a certain yeah. sense, it makes so much sense for Christianity. The family Christmas, the Christmas of gifts and celebration, has nothing in it of existential suffering and the desperate search for personal salvation. So, yes, right. And, and I see the Puritans' point at any rate. <laughs> 
Yeah, and that, you know, I've always considered myself a liberal 17th century Puritan personally, so I've made my accommodation with Christmas, but uh, I keep it in a very Anglican 17th century kind of way, but that's that's neither here nor there. Yeah, the Puritans are against it. In fact, if you read the early records that have been published of colonial New England, there's these great accounts of people being fined and arrested for singing carols or having a bumper of punch at the tavern on Christmas Day and not being at their place of business or being caught playing cards. One of the things, students can't believe that the nation of England canceled Christmas. Christmas for something like 24 years. I'm like, yes, yeah, they really did. There was no, I mean, now, of course, I'm sure, you know, in pre-modern Europe, you couldn't just, it wasn't a totalitarian state. You couldn't stamp it out, but it was at least officially illegal. But the same thing in New England. One of the reasons we know about that people were celebrating Christmas is we do have these court records where people get fined two shillings and five pence for singing carols at the tavern or... Wow. The Puritans also have a point. They are a predominantly their their viewpoint is it has to be endorsed by Scripture. Well, we see no festivals in the early Christian church in the Book of Acts. So we see very little of it in the letters of Paul. He's ambiguous about it. Some people keep a feast and that's okay, and some people don't, and that's okay. The other biggest thing, of course, is that Christmas is a buku Catholic holiday, and so if you're in the Radical Reformation and even the Magisterial Reformation, like the Lutherans and the Calvinists on the continent, you don't want to endorse something that's too Catholic. So Christmas is right out. So New England, no Christmas. Now, other groups against Christmas included the German Anabaptists. So we think about the Mennonites and the Amish. Now, they've softened over the centuries, but when they first get to America, they're against it. So you also have the Dutch Calvinists, anti-Christmas. Then you get the Quakers, anti-Christmas. Then you have the early Baptists, anti-Christmas. So you have all these sects that draw on the Calvinist reform tradition or the radical side of the Reformation. They're all anti-Christmas. Now, it has to be said in places like New Mexico and California and Texas that will later be in the United States, Christmas is going to be a big deal because of Catholic culture dominating down there where there's Christians, not just Native Americans. And then you are going to have people, even in New England, who want to have their Christmas in spite of the law. Which brings us to why. There's a practical reason why the Puritans outlaw Christmas, and this is also part of the war on Christmas, great American tradition that it is, is that Christmas is a carnival season in some aspects. A lot of people make this big deal. A lot of non-Christians are like, well, Christmas is really just this pagan holiday, and then, you know, you Christians just co-opted it. It has nothing to do with Jesus. And then and then evangelicals come in, oh, no, it's all about Jesus. And that's just Voltaire and 18th century atheists trying to debunk Christianity. And Well, they're both right and they're both wrong. There is Definitely some pagan pre-Christian things that percolate up into the Christmas holiday. However, I think that's been overstated. But there's also always been a carnival, not very religious aspect of Christmas. And I think evangelicals in America tend to overstate the religiosity of the holiday in its past, too. And what you see is that caroling, you know, when I was a kid, youth group leader at church would cram 70 kids into a couple of minivans and drive us around to the old people. And we'd sing on their doorsteps and make them feel good on a couple of days before Christmas. Caroling, this wonderful thing. But caroling was institutionalized begging with a touch of violence implied. Songs I mean, still remember that. People yes, they do. Songs do. That's right. And the thing that makes me sad, I'm a musician, I love music, is, and I love the old English carols, is that when I was a kid, they would drag us all into the auditorium at school and some teacher would bang out on the piano and we'd all sing, here we come a wassailing among the leaves so green. Of course, if you translated that into modern English, it would be like, here we come a boozing among the leaves so green, right? <laughs> I mean, wassailing's going from house to house asking for a uh, spiced alcohol punch. And then, of course, the second verse is, you know, we are not beggar children. We are children who you've seen before from your own neighborhood. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And, of course, the one carol that my students, they don't know that one at all anymore. But the one that they do know is we wish you a Merry Christmas, which, of course, goes on to say, bring us some figgy pudding. And then it goes on to say, and we won't go until we get 
get some. And that really is the message of a lot of the traditional carols. We're not going until you give us something we want. And if you don't give it to us, it's not going to end well for you and the kiddies. Caroling was a time for lower class people in Europe to make demands on their better off neighbors. And it was also a time for apprentices and teenage boys to earn extra money at the holidays. And you find this shows up in weird places like Johann Sebastian Bach. He's the cantor at uh, St. Thomas School in Leipzig. And one of his problems is that the Christmas season, and Bach, for those of you in middle Europa, the Bach Christmas Oratorio is your great Christmas piece, like in in America tends to be Handel's Mm -hmm. Messiah. Mm -hmm. But Bach was writing letters to this town father saying, hey, I can't get the boys to sing for the cantatas at church at Christmas because their voices are shot because they've blown their pipes trying to make beer money going around caroling for cash and life. Wow. So, <laughs> well, boys. Boy, hey, if it's money and beer, what are they going to Are they going to show up at church or are they going to be out caroling? So, you know, these carols embody some of the activities. Alcohol, misruled, football matches were common in England that included eye gouging, broken limbs, and usually a couple of deaths across the kingdom every year at Christmas tide. So, when we think about the Puritan shutting down Christmas, there was a very practical public safety issue at work here, too. It's going to be interesting because Puritan New England will eventually soften about Christmas. Now, down in Pennsylvania, you've got the great melting pot of America, where you've got all these different groups being brought over by the Quakers. And of course, coming over with them are Pennsylvania Germans. And they may have brought some Christmas traditions with them. The records are pretty difficult to pick it out, but it's likely the first Christmas trees. The tradition probably does come through them. Christmas trees is a Northern Rhine tradition in Germany. Of course, when I was in school, they'd show us this film strip about Martin Luther inventing the first Christmas tree. And it was one of those old things and the film would clatter and hit the shutters and the narrator's voice, blah, blah, blah voice would go like that and Martin Luther had invented the Christmas tree. That's probably not true, but it does seem that Christmas trees do develop as an alternative to the Catholic creche tradition. So rather than having a nativity set in the home that's prominent that the family does devotions at, which was a late medieval European tradition in Central Europe, upper class Lutherans began to bring a tree into their home or their guild hall, might have started actually in the guild halls, and put gifts on it that would then be distributed to children and the needy on Christmas Day or the day after. And this tradition is mostly among Lutherans and upper class Lutherans in cities in the Upper Rhine. And in the late 18th century, as Germany, especially Goethe and others, start to talk about a sort of pan-German culture, the Christmas tree becomes a symbol, not of a Lutheran alternative to Catholic traditions, but of Germanness. And that's when the Christmas tree spreads throughout most of Germany. There were some Christmas trees even. I think somebody has discovered a Christmas tree in Latvia in the 1520s or so among Lutherans. But the idea that now the Christmas tree is no longer a Lutheran symbol, it's a symbol of German nationalism, culture, uh, anodyne German Christianity. Of course, this is a time when Frederick III is going to force the Lutherans and reform to merge in Germany. And so the Christmas tree begins to spread throughout Germany. And it may have been in some isolated areas. And occasionally a nostalgic immigrant may have set up a tree before that. And so New York City, again, is a place where German immigrants end up going. And we know the first Christmas tree lots in New York City in the 1830s and 40s. We get some German immigrants who are nostalgic setting up Christmas trees. And we get the first American illustration of Christmas trees out of New York City in the late 1820s, early 1830s. But the tradition doesn't really spread through America until two other events. One is when the British public discovers Prince Albert has brought the Christmas tree tradition to the palace in England with Queen Victoria, and it gets published in some British magazines, and those illustrations and stories get picked up. Women's magazines out of New York City were extremely popular and were trendsetting. Goody's Ladies' Book being the most famous in 19th century America, and they pick up these pictures, and they popularize, oh, if Queen Victoria is doing cool, we should do it too. 
And the other thing is that you have the failed German Revolution of 1848, and we get this giant wave of German immigration to America. At the same time, you have the Irish immigration from the potato famine. And once again, the Christmas tree becomes a symbol of, by God, this is Protestant America. We've got all these Irish Catholics coming. Let's embrace the Krauts and take their Christmas trees and stick it to the Catholics. So, <laughs> you have this. So I can imagine both my German-American and my Irish-American ancestors on both sides of this divide. And so the Christmas tree comes in waves with all these German immigrants in the 1848 to 1855 period. And then it really takes off after the Civil War. So most Americans will be treeless until post-Civil War. And they're inspired by German immigrants, the second big wave of German immigrants, and also by Queen Victoria. Now, down in the South, things are a lot different. The South is officially Anglican. And while New England has canceled Christmas, the South has turned it into an American party par excellence. There's a great diary, if you like history, early American history, the guy's name was Philip Fithian. He was a New Jersey divinity student. You get the impression reading his diary, he's not really, really religious. He just kind of felt guilty. His parents died and thought, oh, I should become a Calvinist pastor. He's Presbyterian. And then he graduates from Princeton. He's, yeah, I'm not so sure about what am I going to do. So he goes to work for a plantation family as a private tutor and keeps his really detailed diary. And he paints this great picture of Christmas. So here's this guy who's on the fence about whether he really believes in the divinity of Christ, but he won't dance at the Christmas party because, by God, that just goes against his Calvinism. <laughs> and so he goes down south and he's employed on this plantation. Um, the family's nominally Anglican, and he discusses Christmas in the South, which involves uh, going to church, a big feast, some charity for the slave, but mostly involves a lot of horse racing, gambling, visiting of each other in your plantation houses, and lots of dancing and drinking. And so Christmas in the South has this very much carnival party aspect. And if you look, there's some great Google um, Christmas gambles. G-A-M-B-O-L-S, can find some great prints, cheap prints, sort of Hogarth-style prints from late 18th century England. And it gives you an idea of what it probably also looked like in the wealthier homes of the South. People having conversations, playing games, blinds man's bluff, drinking, eating, trying to kiss under the mistletoe. All of those things are there. All of this is going to get transformed in the late 18th century. Our first big transformation of Christmas is when the evangelical movement of England is the same movement that's going to push to end slavery in the British Empire, begins to impact. And New England softens religiously. And so in the late 18th century, Christmas becomes primarily a religious event in New England. And you get some great music by people like William Billings, the great early American composer, writes some great, beautiful Christmas things. Daniel Reed's another fellow that does that up there. And later will be passed into the Appalachian shape note music tradition and the Primitive Baptist. So it's really spread. We start to see all these traditions begin to merge after the American Revolution. And then, of course, in the South, we've got the Second Great Awakening and the rise of the what will be the Bible Belt. And when that happens, again, people suddenly take a very religious view of Christmas and they're against all the, the events. There's a great story from some Methodist brothers on a plantation in Georgia in the, in the 1790s, and they go home from Christmas, and they've been converted to Methodism. And, and the one brother wants to just have prayer meetings in the evenings around the holidays, and the family's just uh, so upset. They, they were looking forward to dancing, card playing. So they lay a fiddle out because they know the other brother loves to play the fiddle. They just let it sit out on the table. This is their bait for the other brother. And he cannot resist picking up the fiddle, and they pull him away from Methodism. <laughs> 
by the early 19th century, this is probably the one time in American history Christmas is for those who celebrate primarily almost exclusively a religious event. The Protestant churches begin to embrace it. And that's when we get these religious hymns and carols that many Americans know today, like Away in the Manger. Some of them are picked up a little bit earlier and transmogrified from English, even English Catholics like uh, O Come All You Faithful. And by the Civil War, we get things like A Little Town of Bethlehem. And so you have this period from the 1790s to the 1860s when Christmas is primarily a religious holiday. In some places, it's still got this festive element. But then in the late 19th century, we go back to New York City and we get the next big transformation of Christmas. We've got to back up a little bit. We have a famous American poem, and of course, it was the night before Christmas. That poem reintroduces this Dutch tradition of Santa Claus. It's kind of funny. The poem itself is written by an Episcopalian professor, Clement Clark Moore, published in 1823, wrote it for his family, and it'll be illustrated in the 1840s in several editions. And, of course, he draws on his Dutch Calvinist neighbor's tradition of St. Nicholas, and he moves it from St. Nicholas Day, which, of course, is in early December the 6th, he moves it to the 25th of December. And we see this melting pot where we're going to see these various traditions, like the Scottish, they don't do anything traditionally for Christmas, but the Scots' big celebration was on New Year's and still is Hogmanay in, in Scotland today is a big deal. Why we sing Old Lang Syne in America on New Year's Eve is because of the Scottish immigrants. But that's when Scottish and Scotch-Irish people, especially Calvinists, gave gifts to each other. It was on New Year's Day. It wasn't on Christmas. But that gets moved to Christmas. So we see that these traditions begin to meld and merge and everything begins to move towards Christmas. So in a visit from St. Nicholas, the night, it was the night before Christmas, as most of us know it, Clement Moore takes these images from his Dutch neighbors but he also has a German handyman that works around the house. He used to go around and swear a lot. And one of the things he used to swear was Donner und Blitz, thunder and lightning. And so this curse that he goes around the house when he stubs his toe or drops a window pane or whatever becomes the name of two of Santa's reindeer, which I think is a lovely touch. The early illustrations depict a sort of working class guy or, as the one line indicates, an elf. So sometimes he's depicted slightly like an elf from British or German romantic fairy tales of the time. But then, of course, we get Thomas Nast, from whom we are blessed with the word nasty, supposedly. Thomas Nast is this great political cartoonist in New York City. He's a German-American. He's born in 1840. I think he dies in 1902. Nast is famous for his boss Tweed cartoons, which are, are just these wonderful things, right? And he's horrible characters. He's also very anti-Catholic, by the way. And, and not great in the sense of the, what it portrays as good, but it's a great piece of art, even if it's horrific. Is this? It's called the American River Ganges, which shows these Protestant little school kids who are about to be eaten by these crocodiles made out of bishop miters hats. American public schools were quasi-religious in the 19th century, and the Catholics wanted to have, well, then let's have, you know, our kids get to say the rosary or read from the Douay Reims translation of the Bible at their public schools. Well, the Protestants were having none of it, so that's when we get the explosion and birth of American parochial schools, which turns out to be a great tradition in America. It's sad to kind of see it waning. So Thomas Nast, he's also very anti-Irish. I don't think it's an accident that he's the one who gives us the modern image of Santa Claus. So around 1868, Nast, drawing on Clement Moore's poem and his own German-American background, he takes the German tradition of Santa Claus, which has a dark side. We'll talk about that when we end. He takes and draws this very fat, jovial guy laden with toys. And it's at the same time that we're having the first commercial revolution in America. And it's this marriage of toys and children and the other thing that he's drawing on, of course, is the illustration from the book that gives us the domesticity of Christmas, which is Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol of 1843, which was finally really becoming popular in America after the Civil War. Uh, Dickens was hugely popular in America. 
Uh, but he had toured America right before he published A Christmas Carol and published his notes on that journey. And Americans were furious at him. And so A Christmas Carol laid on the shelf to some extent in America until people forgave Dickens, which they eventually did. So Dickens is often credited. And there's this new movie out, right? The Man That Invented Christmas. I object to that historically because while A Christmas Carol does bring the focus from either these festive carnival traditions we've talked about or the evangelical early 19th century Christmas, yes, it moves Christmas to becoming a truly family affair, that it's about the intimacy of a family getting together, having time away from the pressures of work, loving each other, expressing it with gifts, and then also doing charity work. This is Dickens' But he picks the idea up from an American. It really, the credit, in my opinion, should go to Washington Irving of Rip Van Winkle and Sleepy Hollow fame. Because Irving in his sketchbook does what Dickens does only earlier, and he has notes on an old English Christmas in there. Dickens ripped those off for his novel, The Pickwick Papers, his only really truly comic novel. And then he further explores those in A Christmas Carol. But he, Dickens, of course, is the better writer, so we'll give him the credit. It's okay. So Thomas Nast and Americans have picked up on this Dickens things. And then the original illustrations for Christmas Carol, there's this great illustration of the ghost of Christmas present with his great flowing robe and his bushy beard and his wreath of holly and surrounded by all these puddings and chunks of roast beef and bottles of wine and steaming bowls of punch. So these ideas of the scrawny working class Santa Claus from the Clement Moore poem and the illustrations for this ghost of Christmas present Thomas Nast takes that with his German-American Christmas background and blends them together to give us Santa Claus, who then will be amplified most famously by the Coca-Cola Corporation in the 1930s and 40s into the, the elf, the, the fat guy in the red suit that we know today. The other thing that's going to take place is that American merchandisers, especially in New York City, see the potential and they begin to move Christmas items into the store and then create Christmas decorations and Christmas windows. And it becomes a New York City tradition to walk down Fifth Avenue and other places and see these displays in the 1870s and 1880s. These are written up in, of course, trade publications and newspapers and magazines and other stores across America start to imitate this practice. And so the commercial shopping aspect, the Christmas holiday knickknacks and dustables and all the window hangings and the lights and all those good things, they develop in New York City in the commercial establishments in about 1880 into the 1920s. And the other thing that New York City is, it's the capital of the American toy industry. 200 Fifth Avenue is this building that's known as the Toyland of America. All the major companies in the early 20th century that make everything from dolls to trains to trucks to BB guns. They're all there with their showrooms and their corporate headquarters. And so Christmas becomes this commercial powerhouse in the economic life of New York City. And from New York City, it radiates out to America. And in doing so, it starts to suck in any tradition from any immigrant group it can pick up. So the Putz tradition from parts of Germany with the little village under the tree gets sucked in. Lights and ornaments from Czechoslovakia come in made of glass in the early 20th century. Although interesting enough, they were so expensive originally, the German and Czech Christmas ornaments, that rich people would actually make swags of glass ornaments and hang them in their windows in New York City to show off their wealth to their neighbors rather than... <laughs> And the last big development in New York City is, of course, we get the rise of Tin Pan Alley. Tin Pan Alley comes out of a variety show. Composers who needed to produce lots of music for variety shows in vaudeville that traveled the country on the rail networks in the late 19th century, including the minstrel show tradition, uh, which popularized the song Jingle Bell widely in a way that was not possible before. 
as these composers congregated in New York City, they drew in a lot of Jewish American immigrants who had this rich musical training and background, but found that they had a knack for cranking out popular tunes. So many of our great American secular Christmas songs of the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, and 60s are written by Jewish Americans in a tremendously ironic, all-embracing aspect of our commercial republic. So does New York start City, with Irving Berlin? Yeah. Or before? I would say Irving Berlin is probably the earliest, the most famous. There were a couple of other guys. They're forgotten now, and they didn't. But as far as Christmas music and the Jewish-American angle, I'd say Irving Berlin, yeah, it really starts with him. And so by the 1950s, then, you're going to get, in the 40s, you get movies and TV. And, of course, I think of Miracle on 34th Street. It opens with Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. It's an institution that Macy's department store is basically decided, hey, let's take our Christmas window and just make it come alive and put it in on the street for the whole city. Think of the money that'll make. And that's what it is. It's a living Christmas commercial for Macy's department store. Now it's become an institution unto itself. And it's a wonderful tradition in a strange way. And I love looking at the early parades with their demonic balloons. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> you look at these balloons and you think, my God, that would just terrify a small child. And there's a dark side to our Christmas traditions. And it's interesting. There was a horror film, not a very good one, a few years ago called Krampus, which draws on the German tradition. And this was true in Pennsylvania, among the Pennsylvania Dutch. In the village, usually in Christmas Eve, a village elder would dress up as a Santa Claus figure, whichever tradition it's sort of coming out of. And this is true in different parts of Germany, Switzerland. But with him comes one or two other figures. Sometimes a child in an angel-like costume comes as the Christ child or Christkind. And this is a weird quasi-angel Christ pre-Christophany. This is a holdover, I think, from medieval Catholicism. But also comes a Punisher figure, sometimes known as, where well, I grew up, it was called Belschnickel, which was a combination of Punisher Santa Claus. But in other traditions, it's Krampus, who really comes right out of pagan Europe. He's got the cloven hooves and the horns, and he's there to punish the bad little children, put him in his sack and take him off to hell. So there's always been in some American communities this dark side to Christmas, which later gets watered down into getting a lump of coal. And living in bituminous coal country as a kid, let me tell you, there were that was a real threat. I knew what coal was, and that was the last thing I wanted on Christmas morning, although I never actually received it. So... <laughs> So American Christmas then in the 1950s, you've had this domestication from the Victorian period, and that gets amplified through all these Christmas movies, where Christmas is about going home, I'll be home for Christmas, of course, that born out of the World War II and the longing to have men home and to be back home. And I think the World War II generation, because many of their Christmases have been pretty blighted in the Depression, they really doubled down on the domestic holiday cheer side of things in the 1950s, and also the bounty that they could hopefully provide for their children. Right, in the hopes that this would be alternative to a very cruel world that they had known as children and as teenagers and young adults. And also, there's a lot of tensions in the 50s, and they really double down on this domestic commercial Christmas. A lot of people are very hard on that generation for having done so, but I think it's very understandable that they did so. Americans have come full circle, and we now have this war on Christmas where we just want to banish Christmas. It's an old American tradition. I think we should embrace the combat and enjoy it. Every region has its unique elements, and every family has got its ethnic background. You know, whether you've got a, the fish stew that you eat because your family's Italian on Christmas Eve, or you put straw under the tablecloth because your ancestors came from Poland, 
all these things that have fed into American Christmas, and so many of them are dying out, even the ones that we invented ourselves in the 19th and early 20th century. And I hope people would take the time to talk to your older relatives, think of back to your childhood, and, and give some of those traditions to your children. Revive the ones that have died out, hang on to them, and keep them. I'm a sentimentalist uh, at heart and a moralist, so you could roll your eyes at me, but I think that there's something to be said for tradition and keeping it going. It ties us to our ancestors. As Chesterton said, there should be a democracy of the dead, and the deads have their right too. Well, Eric, thanks a lot for joining me. This has been very enlightening and fun. Oh, I'm glad. I had a blast. Going through American Christmas and all the ethnic strands that go to make it up. As I said, listeners can put up their questions, their comments, and we can do a follow-up. That'd be grand. Thanks again for doing this, and we'll be back next year with the rest of our podcast. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Take care. All the best and happy Christmas. Merry Christmas.